Today, it's all about photographing for the kid in us, toy photography on Behind the Shot. Hi, as always, welcome to Behind the Shot. This is the show where we try and get inside the mind of great photographers by taking a closer look behind one of their shots from conception to completion and all the stories and challenges that happen in between. I'm Steve Brazel. I've got a great show lined up for you today. And at the end of the show, I will tell you all about the critique shows that I'm doing with Don Komarechka. We do it through our Flickr group. So if you're interested in participating in the behind the shot critique shows, make sure that you either stick around until then or just jump to the end and you can find it that way as well. I'll give you all the links as we go throughout uh, this show as well on how to reach me, how to reach behind the shot and how to reach our guest for today. I'd like to welcome Mitch Wu to the show. Mitch, how are you, buddy? Doing really well, Steve. Thank you so much. Pleased to be here. Yeah, it's nice to have you here. I found out about you. Let me let me start here. Mitch is an LA-based toy photographer. And when I say toy photographer, it's not what a lot of people would think. You bring toys to life. And I found out about you because uh, we have a mutual friend, Skip Cohen, who it seems everybody knows Skip Cohen. And then Dr. T, uh, Larry from Platypod, the founder of Platypod, uh, also suggested you to me. And I went and I looked at your work and it, it really is a type of photography I don't think I see at all, if not, not a lot. How do you describe, because you're not just doing like a toy sitting on a shelf, right? You're bringing these things to life. How do you describe what you do? It's right. I mean, when I tell people that I'm a toy photographer, I think the very first impression is that I do toy photography shots for catalogs, um, white backgrounds. And although there's definitely a need for that type of photography, uh, what I'm really interested in is creating dynamic images that tell stories. So it's all about storytelling uh, with action and emotion and motion. So those three things. Yeah, those three things. Motion. You have motion, emotion, and action in all of your shots with inanimate objects. Correct. Yes. It's awesome to me. What was fascinating to me is researching you. I found out that your background is illustration. You have a degree in illustration, right? That's right. That's right. Which led you to Lucasfilm, Pixar, Warner Brothers, Walt Disney Company, where where you worked as a product designer. So were you were you illustrating for them? Is that what you were doing? Yeah, it's a weird thing. You know, you go to school. For me, it was art school, four years. And as many young people um, do, they have an idea or a map in their head of where they think life is going to take them. Um, but also being young, uh, I got out of art school and opportunities arose and I followed those opportunities. And before you know it, I was totally off my path. Um, so this was not the career that I ever imagined. Um, Interesting. My first job. Yeah. My first job was in product design and that was illustrating uh, like these uh, ceramic carousel horses. They were just drawings and they would be turned into uh, ceramic figurines like in Taiwan. Um, and that was the path that I was on. Then more and more opportunities and you just get down this path and there's no way of turning back. At least you think that. Um, no regrets. It led me to where I am right now and to what I'm doing right now. But yeah, it was a crazy, crazy journey. Like, And part of it was, as you said, going to Disney. I was hired by Disney. I, they moved me down from Northern California. Um, and that was the best job job that I ever had. And I stayed job exactly- like a nine to five. Uh, what exactly did you do for Disney as an illustrator? 
I mean, you so weren't doing, you arts. weren't doing cartoons. Were you, were you sketching no. products or something? Yeah, it was a cross between, and this is what I did basically for a good 50% of my career. I was drawing and concepting out, um, ideas for collectibles and giftware, which is uh, figurines, whether they're made out of resin or ceramic. Um, and then also managing the entire process of having those developed, which led me to living in Asia. At the age of 26, I moved to Taiwan and I lived there. I worked with factories. I worked with sculptors, a uh, huge learning experience. Just the whole experience really kind of gave me a strong foundation as to what large companies are really looking for. Uh, a lot of times I sat on the other side of the desk of a lot of the people that I'm dealing with now as an independent um, freelance photographer. So I kind of have a good idea of what uh, what these companies are looking for as, as far as what they want from independent designers and photographers. So that's been a huge, huge help. Yeah. I was just going to say, do, do you ever, do you ever go into a meeting and you're sitting on the opposite side of the table with somebody who doesn't know that you were on that side and your knowledge catches them off guard because it must make negotiating much easier. I think at this point, because it's been years and years since I've been at those companies that almost everybody now has no idea that I used to work with Disney, how I had relationships with Warner Brothers, Lucasfilm. Um, and I don't, I'm not real forthcoming about it outcoming about it. Um, but it does, from my own point of view, it is a huge, huge advantage and help when dealing with companies because we speak the same language. I know what they're looking for. Um, I know what's important to them um, and I know what not to do. So yeah, it's been a big help in that respect. I can imagine there's times, you know, their goals, you, you, you possibly know how to articulate their goals better than they do, but your photography switch is, is, Fascinating to me because here you are an illustrator working for these companies. Right. And you move into photography, but not toy photography, not anything to, not anything to do with Warner Brothers or Disney or whatever. You move into corporate lifestyle and wedding photography, which That's right. Yeah. is right? Yeah. Why? Yeah. What what I I guess the question is when you're an illustrator, your degree is in illustration, you're doing these jobs, what gets right. Mitchell Wu to go take a right turn and then a sharp U-turn and, and go to corporate lifestyle and wedding photography. Right. Um, you know, in 2006, a couple of major things happened. I lost uh, my older brother and that was huge to me, very impactful. Um, and I also had the highest paying job of my life, but it was also the worst job of my life. So I had these two things happen around the same time. And I learned two things. One, we always say that we know that we're not around forever. It could be gone tomorrow. This was like a very real example of that to me. Um, and the second lesson that I learned was that you cannot just chase money. You can't take a job just for the paycheck. You have to do something that is meaningful to yourself. And to me, that was being creative, um, telling stories. And when those two things kind of collided together. I really reassessed what I was doing with my life. I wasn't happy with what I was doing. I had realized once and for all that I was so far off my path that I didn't even know if I could get back to my path. And that path oh, being the one that I thought I was going to be on when I was in, when I was in art school. Um, so photography, I'd always been interested. I never really did it seriously, but 
wanting a huge change in my life, that was the direction that I chose. And at that time, that was still a good 10 years before I even realized toy photography existed. In fact, back then, I'm not sure that it did in any kind of meaningful way. Did you already um, so, know photography? Or, or I mean, did you, did you go, did you wake up one morning and go, that's it, I'm switching streams. I'm gonna jump over into that stream, write it where I can and, oh, camera, what do I do? Or did you already yeah, exactly. have an idea? Um, I knew that I loved creating images and I loved trying to tell stories with those images. But at the time when I made that decision, I think I may have been shooting with a point and shoot still. <laughs> so I went out and I bought a, yeah, I went out and bought a Canon Rebel. Okay. I had this Rebel. I was so hey. excited. I've got a camera. I'm going to do this. So I go out and I take photos. I get back to my computer to, to process them. Every single one of them was blurry. Like it was my first foray off the green square, you know, and it's like, oh my God, this is not. This is not what I expected. P for professional. And yeah. it was, yeah, it was a long learning process. And I've, and everything that I've done kind of taught me something new, which is basically my whole life anyway. But, um, and I'm still learning. I mean, who is a photographer that doesn't continue learning every time they shoot? I mean, that's kind well, of the nature of the hope. beast. And, and the Canon exactly. XTI, the Canon Rebel XTI was my first camera ever. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. And really for the time frame, it was a very good camera, but here's where, Here's where your path and mine kind of converge. You move into doing photography. You move into doing corporate lifestyle and weddings. And then something right. changes that path for you and makes you stop doing weddings. And it's the same as me. So I DJed weddings for 18 years. I was booked oh, okay. usually 13 months in advance, all here in Southern California. And right. I, I mean, I had a very successful DJ business doing weddings. I actually still, I've stopped 15 years ago probably. And I still get calls periodically that somebody accidentally got my phone number and I have to help them find somebody. And the reason right. I stopped is because my son uh, was in going into high school and I was booked every wedding, 13 months, every weekend, 13 months in advance. Right. And I wanted weekends with my family. And Correct yes. me if I'm wrong, but that's kind of your situation where you didn't want to take weekends away from your daughter? Yeah, it's not kind of. It's exactly the same reason. My daughter was just entering high school. It was 2015, and she was a competitive swimmer. Everything was happening on the weekends, right? Of course, as you know, having been a DJ at weddings, um, weekends are weddings are weekend killers. There's no, there's no, yeah, you know, there's no second thought about that. It's a, it's a weekend killer, and and sometimes you when have I two. saw her entering. I used to have yes. two on a Saturday. Yes. Yeah. I've had, yeah, I've had Saturday Sundays. So it, it's, you know, as soon as she entered high school, it just, it, it exploded in my head that I only have four more years left with her and every year goes by quicker. As you know, they flew by. So it was the, it was, and I didn't know what I was going to do. I literally, when I made the decision to stop shooting weddings, I had no idea what I was going to do, but I knew that I wasn't going to shoot weddings anymore. I was going to spend the weekends with my wife and my kid and just like be with them and experience her last years at home. More And yes, more so power exactly to like you. you. That's exactly mine. My you, son man. was in drumline yeah. and marching band and they were at all the football games and right. it was like, I want to, I want to be there and take pictures. That's what got me into photography. Right. Actually, I had never shot photos until my son was in marching band. And that's right. what, what the reason that I bought the, the Canon XTI, but here's Mitch photographing weddings, leaves weddings to do this. And somehow 
which is just, I'm not sure you could explain it and I'd even understand it, but somehow goes from corporate and weddings to I'm done with corporate and weddings. I want to be home on weekends and works for Disney and Warner Brothers and Hasbro and Hot Wheels and Harry Potter and Fortnite and G.I. Joe and Toy Story and Scrabble right. and Power Rangers and Mattel. You you end up making this switch to a field I honestly didn't know existed in this form. I mean, we all knew pictures existed on packaging. But that's correct. Yes. What you're doing is more like tour posters, pictures. How how do you get what what made you go toys? Okay. Yeah, I have to say that um, before I before I get into that, it's like you just described it. I've never been closer to the career that I imagined when I was in art school than I am right now because I'm working with clients on a freelance basis. I always imagined that I'd be doing magazine covers as an illustrator, book covers, uh, maybe movie posters, um, editorial illustrations, and you know, as a toy photographer now, I've done I've done like four or five magazine covers. Um, I've done a lot of editorial illustrations. I've been in tons of magazines. So it's just been a blast because I feel like I've kind of come full circle. My dad, my dad asked me the other day, last time I saw him. So do you think, do you think you got anything out of art school? Was it even worthwhile? And I said, dad, because you know, he paid for it. And I said, dad, you know what? I couldn't, I don't think I'd be doing what I could do right now without having learned what I did in art school, which was composition, lighting, storytelling, um, you know, how you direct the eye through your images. So I do consider that Light, portion, shadow. that education that I got. Yeah. Exactly. Critical to what I do now. Um, back to the question of how I even discovered toy photography. I was on Facebook. My nephew, who's also a very, very good toy photographer. I started seeing photos of his on Facebook and, you know, to me, and it was, this was around 2015, 2014, and they looked really cheesy. I'm not going to lie. Every, because I think the art form at that stage was really in its infancy. Uh, people were just starting to get involved with it and it was just starting to develop, but that's when I saw it. And he invited me, Hey, said, uncle Mitch, next time you're up in San Francisco, come on out, bring your camera. Um, we'll go out to a park and we'll start, we'll shoot some toys. And Took several months for me to do that, but I did get up there, went to a park. He loaned me some uh, Stormtrooper action figures because I didn't have any toys. And we just you, shot toys. Based and on I, what's you know, behind I, you, you do now. Yeah, I do now. I do now. But it's interesting because I would say that 99% of toy photographers, and there's a lot of them, um, they all started off as um, collectors and toy enthusiasts. And they, they, they're not, they don't have a photography background. They started sharing photos of their collections with other toy collectors. And they started doing this on Instagram. At some point, somebody started getting creative with it and it started to spread and people started seeing what they were doing. And that's when they became interested. They started with cell phones. Um, they graduated to point and shoots and DSLRs. And if you go onto Instagram now, if anybody goes on Instagram and, and looks at the hashtag toy photography, Minds are going to get blown because just in five years, I've watched it. I've watched it progress from really crude, cheesy, rudimentary toy photos to like really, really sophisticated imagery that is just mind blowing. Every time I go into Instagram, my jaw drops. Okay. But I've looked around and yes. I don't think anything equates to yours for me. You mentioned magazine covers and stuff. I do want to mention you've been in New York Post, UK Daily Mail, WGN, PBS, stuff like that. Right. You became the first ever exhibitor, photo exhibitor 
at the Toy Fair in New York in 2020, cutting the ribbon with Shaq. And I mean, literally your, your trajectory is very, very fascinating to me. And it's funny when I first saw your work growing up, my brother did photos film in the days we're talking seventies. And I'm trying to remember it was either a Mayasikor or a Minolta or something like that. And he used to take toy airplanes, like model airplanes that we build. Right. He'd put them in a trench. He'd break the wing. He'd take like steel wool and stuff it inside the wing and light that on fire, which caused smoke. Right. And he would take pictures of it. And as soon as I saw your work, I'm like, my, my brother would absolutely love this stuff. And now. Wait, what year was that? 70s. What year was that? Would have been, oh, would have been probably see, mid to early 70s. Wow. That's cool. That's cool. And, and that to me is what you're doing today, except elevated to the professional photographer level. Marvel has a thing called 616, which is, I'm going to read the description here so I don't mess it up. Uh, uh, where is it? Anthological documentary series airing on Disney+. Plus about the rich historical, cultural, and societal context that has become inseparable from the stories of the Marvel Universe. And it's Marvel. This relates to what you shoot, and you're even featured in this, which means you are the perfect person to ask some really serious photography questions to. People think toy photography, but your images are extremely intricate. And and when we look at today's shot, people will understand what I mean better, but your pictures have, have details thought about that I think is where most people fall short. Most people might take a pretty picture, but it's kind of like I use the, the analogy of edging the lawn. Anybody can mow their lawn, but when you edge the lawn, it just gets that pop, right? <laughs> and you edge right. the lawn. Th- that those details that to me matter. When you come up with a concept, start to finish, how long does one of your shots take? Um, it, you know, obviously it, it depends on what the, what the image in my head is. Um, and today the, I would say the most critical time consuming part is coming up with the idea uh, because I'm really, I really try to be story-based and I really want to have something to say. It could be really silly and dumb, but I, I really want the image to say something. Um, but aside from coming up with the concept, like uh, just the other day, I did a really, a really simple setup. I had it set up on my porch. I do a lot of shots on my porch. I had it set up in probably 15 minutes. And then I shot it probably took another 15 minutes. Editing probably took um, maybe a half hour. So that, that would be definitely on the quick side. On the opposite side of that, if I've got multiple figures and they're doing dynamic poses and they're, the posing itself can be a nightmare. Um, and then the editing itself, it, that could be, it could be like a two or three day process for sure for one image. Okay. But uh, you I think said- I've had images you said coming up with the idea can be the hardest part. And and, and I, I want to go there now because your scenes are cinematic, right? Again, people, you you need to go to behindtheshot.tv and look at like a gallery of Mitchell's work that I have there and a little blurb that I wrote about him. Just go find the associated blog post and show notes for the show, behindtheshot.tv or go visit Mitchell's site. And I'm putting up the website as, as we go through. And of course, I'll mention that at the end of the show as well. And it'll be in all the links, YouTube and everything, links to a site. But these are not just, you know, toys. These are cinematic scenes. 
So where do these ideas come from? Yeah, pretty much. Um, they all come from my head, but they could come from numerous places. It could be just simple observations um, while I walk down the street, or it could be like one of the areas that I get a lot of my ideas from that I love to mine is, so the thing about these characters, they're all pretty well known. They're pop culture, uh, Star Wars, a Stormtrooper, Darth Vader. We know these characters because we've been Buzz told what to know yeah. about them. Yeah, I mean, what we know about them is what the creators tell us to know about them. I like to kind of look at it from a different angle and show characters, and this is just for my personal work, but to show characters in unexpected ways that people have no expectation that they'd ever see that. So for example, um, a picture of Darth Vader pushing a stormtrooper on a swing. Um, and I like to think of like, yeah, we, we know that Darth is um, a bad guy. He's evil, is he, but is he evil 24 seven? Or when he's off work and he gets back to his cabin, does he leave his mask and his cape on or does he kick off his boots and does he crack open a beer and does he relax? You know, first of all, so I like Darth to, Vader I like has to... a cabin. <laughs> <laughs> he <So> does. <laughs> that's a place I want to go. But, but see, you just said the thing. And this to me is when, you know, when you see a movie and you associate and kind of root for the bad guy, it's because the director right. or the writer or more likely both have humanized them. Right. And that's what you are doing to me is you're humanizing these, these characters by building, I, I'm assuming, by the way, do you just go to local to cool scenes or are you building most of these sets? Um, most of the sets that you see are just either found around my yard or home, or I set them up either in my backyard or on my porch. Um, most of the images that, um, that you're going to have in your gallery were either, most of them are on my porch. Like if you go through my website or my Instagram, I would say seven out of 10 shots are taken on my porch. Okay. Um, the rest maybe are in the backyard. If I'm doing a lot of water, like a watery scene, that's usually on my patio. Um, I used to go to a park a lot, but then I realized that I can create most of the stuff that I need to create around my home. Because you don't need big yeah. space, right? I mean, what's a scene take up space-wise? Uh, you don't you don't need space. Like when I shot weddings, you're always like, where am I going to shoot the, yeah. the portraits? You know, where can I get some decent space? With toys, it's like, you know, you have a you have five feet of space or less, much less actually, depending on the toy, and you've got your set. You know, you have all the space you need. But some toys, yeah. what, what's the biggest toy you've ever, what, what, actually, what's both? What's the smallest toy you've ever photographed and the largest? The smallest is probably like this little Ant-Man figure. He's not articulated. He's just like this little, in this little running pose. And he's maybe three quarters of an inch, if okay. that. Um, the biggest one would probably be like uh, when I I did some work for Mattel, they had this line of dolls. They're not Barbies, but they're similar. And I think those are like 11 or 12 inches. So yeah, that's the range. And it's a pretty good range as far as toys go. I thought I had seen something about a big car or bus or something. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You just corrected me. That that's the biggest one. That, that was a, that was Barbie related. That was her dream RV or dream camper. Okay. Um, and that thing weighed, that thing was, I don't know, it was this big and it weighed over six pounds. So that was definitely the largest toy. Okay. Yeah. See, this definitely is just the largest toy. This is one of those genres where I would have never thought of this, even though I should have. My brother effectively was doing this in the 70s, you know, just for fun. Right. But right. it's a fascinating thing to me because it really is you get to photograph 
childhoods. You get to right. you get to tell the story of our childhood memories. And that that really is really special. Yeah. So back to the um, your question about where do I get my ideas from? You just reminded me that the other huge component of my toy photography is nostalgia. So whether it, like if you look at the images that I create, a lot of the toys will be from like movies or shows or toys that I had when I was growing up. Um, but even a larger component for the nostalgia is the things that my daughter grew up with. So you see a lot of Toy Story in my gallery. And that's because when she was growing up, we probably watched the original Toy Story, I don't know, more than a dozen times, probably double that. Um, and her favorite book growing up was Where the Wild Things Are. Oh, and great book. Kind of like a couple of years into toy photography, I did find that some that a company called McFarland created a line of um, these beautiful, beautiful Where the Wild Things Are sculptures or actually the action figures, really, but they're really intricate. And to create images from those just really brings me back to those years when I was sitting on the edge of her bed, reading her these stories, like once a week, I probably read her that story among all the other ones. So nostalgia is a huge component. And the stories set up shots like today's shot. And this shot is called Duke and Forky. And for those of you that are listening on the audio version, head over to the website, behindtheshot.tv. You can see this picture there. You can also watch the video there if you want to, or you can go to YouTube to watch the video. Or if you prefer getting this show delivered to you via a podcast app, it is available in audio or video in the podcast app. So let's talk about this shot for a second. And I'm going to do what I always do. I'm going to try like heck to describe this photo to people on the audio feed, and I'm going to fail drastically, but I'm going to try. So I'm going to start here. It's toys. But these toys are in an amazing real life scene on what appears almost like a picnic table, wooden table with a very shallow depth of field. Uh, the depth of field is falling back into blur. Uh, the, the wooden table is weathered as though it would be kind of like, you know, like an outdoor table, as it were. You've got a toy motorcycle frame right coming at the lens. So you can see the front of the motorcycle rider. The motorcycle has like jumped off the table. And the motorcyclist's right leg, so frame left, is kicking over a glass of milk onto a living uh, spork, which is a spoon and a fork combination type thing. Has a face, has a mouth. It's a living spork holding cookies. There's cookies on the ground. Milk is everywhere in the air. The spork is falling back. Feet are off the ground. Um, there is so much going on in here that it, it's just wild to me. So let's start here. Let's let's start with the technical stuff, and then we'll kind of sure. delve into your idea here. So first of all, you, uh, you shoot Canon. Yeah, I'm using the Canon 5D3, which is a hold. Most of my equipment's holdover from the wedding photography days. Yeah. Okay. And what would you have shot this with lens wise? I would say that 95% of my images are shot with the Canon 135 millimeter F2L. Okay. Now that's not a macro lens. Why, why that lens? I, I mean, I could see, I would actually think if I were to do this, I'd probably go for the hundred macro. Why the 135 F2? It's such a good question. I have such a deep answer for you. 
because I had it from wedding photography. <laughs> Seriously, but but you know, but you counts. nailed it because you nailed it because most toy photographers who have been upgrading their equipment do shoot with a hundred millimeter macro. Um, I use this because first of all, I had it. Uh, second of all, because when I photograph weddings. It was definitely one of my favorite lenses. Uh, it's obviously a prime lens. It's very light. It's probably the sharpest, one of the sharpest lenses in my kit. Um, I do like it's 135 millimeter because as you can see with this image that you're talking about, uh, there's a lot of milk splashing about. And if it's not milk, I'm I'm like blowing off explosions with fireworks or I'm I'm like blowing dirt and debris all over the place it gets really messy. So having the 135 lets me get back a distance from the okay. scene, but still give me a really beautifully compressed image. Um, oh, hold on. So for that oh, reason, yeah. You're blowing stuff up with fireworks or blowing milk and stuff around, but the camera's far away. Right. How you see where I'm going with this? Are you using a wireless trigger? What are you triggering with? Yeah, exactly. Infrared wireless remote. Um, it's my very cheap assistant that I have with me on every shoot. Uh, and it's been a lifesaver because otherwise, what it, I know some people, like if they're beginning, they will set the timer and run over and do something, but that's just crazy. It's really crazy because especially for shots like this, you want to try to capture from start to finish that splash because you don't know what you're going to get. A lot of things I can control. I control, I control as much as I possibly can in this image. The one thing I cannot control is how that milk is going to splash. I have a pretty good idea of how it's going to splash after I've done it so many times, but still there's, it's uncontrollable. And so you want to give yourself the best chance possible of catch of capturing a really dynamic splash that really helps tell the story of what's happening. Okay. So I want to touch on focus in a minute, but first of all, let's go through the technical stuff again. Uh, what would an exposure on a shot like this be? Because you froze uh, the at, milk. And, and what's interesting is you froze the milk, but you didn't freeze it in a way. Like if it was blurry, it would it would lose effect. Uh, this is one of those where the motion blur would not work. Having it frozen works. And yet, right. because it's liquid, it still has that bendability, flexibility look to it. Absolutely. What would you have shot this at? Um, I tried to shoot all of my like practical effects, which have a lot of movement at at least a thousandth of a second. I think this was at a 1600th. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, and even faster if the light is good. Um, but in my kitchen, which is where this was shot on my, on my kitchen table, I have, um, I have a large window camera, right. And, but I usually keep the blinds. I, I monitor, I kind of modulate that light with my blinds. It's very low tech. Um, and then I have, another LED light camera left providing fill as I need. And sometimes I'll have uh, little lights to the rear providing some rim light as well. So you use constant light. Yeah, the light faster though. the speed. I do use constant light. I, I When I first started, I had, so lighting and uh, certain things, especially lighting is what I had to modify and acquire when I switched over to toy photography. I started by trying the speed lights, but it was just too much. It was overkill and having continuous lighting really, really is so much more useful to me to be able to see how light falls and shadow falls real time and knowing what you see is what you get. So it actually saves me a lot of time. Um, and the lights that I use are much smaller. I use Lytra LED lights. Great they're lights. very small lights. They're just, just to give you an idea, they're really small and you can really kind of hone in on what you're shooting with these small lights. So it's 
very specialized and very beautiful for what I'm doing. Okay, but I'm, I, I've got the EXIF data in front of me now. F2.2, ISO 2000, that got you to the 1600th of a second. Right, right. Manual white balance it shows. So you're setting the white balance to match your lighting, but here's where, here's where I get confused. You're shooting at 135 millimeters at F2.2. Right. Your depth of field, as we can see in this picture, your depth of field is not huge, right? Right. I'm assuming you pre-focus on the motorcyclist and the, and the spork or whatever, but then you're going over there, moving that glass, and I'm, I've got a picture I'll bring up here in just a second, but moving sure. the glass to make the splash, I'm not going to spoil that secret yet, but still it brings in a focusing issue because the glass is sharp. So- you just you're just careful to keep it on the same plane as them. Is that what you're doing? In this shot, yes, exactly. They're all on the same focal plane. Um, that's part of the the challenge or time consuming aspect of, especially when I have a number of figures. If I want them to be all in focus, it's making sure that they're all somehow on the same focal plane. Um, I can focus stack, but for this image here, it was definitely they were all in the same plane. Okay, yeah. so wait a minute. You're you're using a remote. Are you going click 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 click, or, or are you? How are you triggering multiple shots? Uh, I just keep my finger down on that button, and it goes. And just keep firing. So you're in high speed <laughs> continuous mode. I uh, am. Photograph. Yeah. This shot. I am. Was actually the cover of a magazine. Right. right. It was on Voyage magazine. Correct. And is that what this was shot for? No, it's not. Um, that was a bonus. This was shot. Okay. So since I used to work for Disney back in the nineties, I worked for them for six years. Um, that was my before life, before photography. Since I began toy photography, like having Disney as a client was like on my toy photography bucket list. And I, I tried, I never thought it was going to happen, but um, it was probably like in June of last year when I got contacted by Disney and said they wanted me to create some images, a series, I think it was six images to promote and celebrate the release of Toy Story 4. So there it was. <laughs> and this is this was one of the images that I created for that okay. campaign. Um, and it ran primarily in the UK. Um, but it, it was it was a lot of fun to work on. And what I'm finding more than ever now is that um, people are very familiar with my work and they know what I do. So I I get basically get to run with it as far as my concepts are. In this case, for Disney, there were no approval concepts needed. I just went to town and did what I wanted. Wait it was a minute. fun. It was a lot You're of fun. You're telling like me a, a corporation like Disney hired Mitch Wu and didn't do what I would expect they would do, which is three suits standing around you at all time, wanting you to shoot tethered <laughs> to see exactly what was coming up on an iPad they were holding wirelessly in their hand. Right. To be that able to approve happens. or deny a shot? That never happens. That never happens for me. <clears throat> really? Yeah. So I do. A lot of clients will want to see um, concepts for approval. Um, and I do I do ask that my any approvals happen at the concept stage because once I shoot, having to make any changes could mean an entire reshoot. So if there's any kind of approvals, it's at concept stage, and I'll either sketch them out or I'll do a quick iPhone down and dirty composite of some photos. But that's, yeah, that's it. Do, okay, so during that concept stage, is it all your concept or do you ever get, I hate to say this, but 
your old job, right? Huh. Do you ever do you ever get those those illustrators and designers come to you and go, Mitchell, this is what we're thinking, and is it collab is, is it ever collaborative like that? It's collaborative in the in the um, way in the manner that they might have a theme that they're trying to address or a goal. Um, and then they'll ask me to come back with some concepts. That's basically how it's done. Yeah. Wow. That see that that's interesting. But to me. this so let's, was let's, you know, go yeah, ahead. But, but this shot was this shot was complete um, blue sky. Uh, you know, open to whatever I came up with. Um, obviously, if I did something that they didn't like, they would have told me as I submitted the image. But you know, it was all great. It was all wonderful. I see. I love that. I love when people. It's the old saying. Hire a person that you know can do the job and then let them do the job. And yeah. your work right. speaks for itself. So let, let's talk about the behind the scenes a little bit here, because this is actually really fascinating to me. So cool. from a behind the scenes point of view, this is how you angled everything. And it it's interesting because the melt glass has, what are, are those? They can't be just wires. They wouldn't hold up the melt glass. Are they like steel? It's just wire. I mean, there it's a thicker gauge wire, obviously, but um, yeah, that's like, as I said before, I don't, when I first saw people's toy photography, like my nephews, the first question, like, I remember he had like a little BMX bike with a Ninja turtle jumping across something. And I'm going, how did he do that? Did he just kind of throw it there and just happen to catch it at the right moment? <laughs> um, but as you, as you know, especially now after seeing the image, there's like on a shot like this, there's no way you could do that. I leave as very little to chance as possible. So that's why you'll see the glass propped up on wire in the exact position that I want it. Um, you'll see the um, Duke Kaboom on the motorcycle at the precise angle again on wire. With a wire on the I other side, it. right? Yeah. And even the little cookies that seem to be like being disrupted from the movement is they're all propped up on little wires at the angle that I want. So as is, um, but the idea is, yeah, as is Forky. As the idea is that everything is kind of like in motion, the table shaking, so you're getting a lot of movement even on the cookies. Um, but again, it's all controlled and very planned out. And then we get to the fun part, because once then you've got it all part, propped yeah. up, and you focus on what you're looking at here, so nothing is really moving. You get your focus, then you walk over and you do this with a can of computer compressed air like you would blow a computer out with. Correct. And I love it. Now, Correct. There, this behind Correct. the scenes shot though is interesting to me because the actual shot, right, does not have milk all over the table. But right. the behind the scenes shot with the air is at the point the milk's all over the table. So here's the question. Right. You blow, you blow the air in like this, milk splashes, Let's be honest. Splashes right. are different, right? We've all done water drop or a lot of people have done water drop photography and no two water drops are the same. How many times did you have to clean this up and re-go? That's, that is the time consuming aspect of liquid photography is the cleanup and the reset. Um, I don't remember how many times I do remember. I'm trying to remember this image. I do. Re no, I don't think it was this image. I do remember doing another shot similar with uh, a glass of milk or some of water that I actually nailed on the first time. And that was such an anomaly that it never happens. But for something like this, typically probably at least a, a half dozen times, you know, so at least a half dozen times, it could be more. 
for sure. You, Just re- take the shot, reset, clean, um, do it again. But each time you're getting some shots before the milk hits the table. And your wife Correct. is standing in the kitchen going, what are you doing? <laughs> I'm not She's cleaning never that. around when I do these shots. Yeah. I, <laughs> That's so, the other part is the cleanup. Here, here's something I'm curious about because obviously this is not what I shoot. It's fascinating right. work to me. I, and I'm a firm believer that we can learn, that we can take something from any genre and use it in what we shoot. What can people that do non-toy photography, what can they take right. away from your work? Yeah, I mean, it has nothing to do with photography or technique, I would love for people to really become more involved with storytelling in whatever they do. Because for me, um, whether you're talking about a movie or a photo of a toy, it's more impactful if there's a story involved. It's more memorable if there's a story involved. So my goal for a client is, yes, you need to have a dynamic photo, an exciting photo to grab that person, to get them to look at it. But once you have their attention, what are you going to do? Is there anything there compelling to them? Or are you just going to let them go and let them swipe with their thumb to the next photo? Or is that is that dynamic image, does, is there a story behind that that's actually going to grab them and pull them in? So my goal as a toy photographer is to really grab that viewer and pull them into that image just for a few moments to let them linger and kind of live in the world that I created for that image and for them, hopefully. And for a client, for a brand, I think that is the ultimate to get a person to really engage with that image and to remember what's happening in that photo. Um, You can ask for more, whether you're just a photographer trying to create a fun image, or if you're a client that engaged with the photographer and you're hoping to bring more attention to your brand or product or whatever it is. So storytelling is the key to that. It's analogous to magic to me. So 90% of magic is the pattern. The, the words that you say, the misdirections, et cetera, that you say is 90% of, I mean, okay, professional magicians, I do it as a hobby, but professional magicians would probably argue cool. with me that it's the thousands and thousands of knuckle busting hours they've done perfecting their slights. But the truth of the matter is you can do a basic, basic effect with really good pattern. And that to me, it's, it's that magic of getting somebody for a moment to suspend belief. Right. To to leave their life for that split second and believe that card could have transported into the middle of a lemon or to right. for a split second, just believe that this motorcycle could have kicked over the glass right there. Right. And, and here's right. a part of this whole thing that's interesting to me, which is where to me, your your background, your degree comes in. And that is you sketch these things out. You sent me this shot of the Pringles shot where you've got a Pringles can pouring out Pringles chips. And then right. you have characters, you know, on the chips or floating through midair and chips that are falling down. And there's a full hand-drawn idea here. Do you do that for every shoot? No, I don't. But for, again, for some client shoots, they'll ask to see the concept that's in my mind. And in those cases, um, I will to, and it may or may not be as tight as the one that you're discussing, um, but they do have at some point a very good idea of what I'm going to shoot. Um, But for my own personal work, it's rare that I'll do that. A lot of it gets worked out 
on the set when I'm putting stuff together, I'm working on different angles, um, positioning to get the most emotion out of it is really what I'm trying to do. So it really is in my head and then it goes straight to the set. Yeah. So here's my big question on, I'm guessing other than the lights, the supports, the camera, you had a tripod, that's probably the only other gear you use, right? Yes. I mean, the air can and all that, but, but camera wise is probably that. So here's primarily that's it. Here's the hard question for me. There is no way I could have photographed this image and not completely blown out the milk, clipped highlight reflections on the glass. There are no hot spots anywhere in the nothing in here. And the, the picture is almost all white. I mean, okay, the background, the table aren't. Every single character here had the ability to clip because they're white. How right. did you not? Do you underexpose? I don't, I don't go forward and, and purposely underexpose. I just try to nail my exposure. Um, I don't know. I'm just going to say I got lucky on that. (laughs) I'm not buying it. I'm just not buying it. There is no way I could have, there, there is so much right here. Like your composition, let's go composition, the spork, the biker, both at rule of thirds horizon of the table in the back, just slightly below horizon about at the bottom rule of third, right? The splash, and this is why it takes you 10, 12 times to clean up the table. The splash, had it gotten too close to the edge. Now, of course, you could have cloned it out in post for all I know. But the spread of that splash, how close it got to the edge, could unbalance the picture actually very quickly. If it was, for example, it's heavy at the bottom where it's splashing out of the glass, but then the drops dissipate, but you have a couple of big ones. If that got too many heavy ones at the top, wouldn't have worked. They had to dissipate evenly and be smaller farther away, in my opinion, at least, uh, as they do for this to work the way that it did. So here's my question. When you're composing this shot or any other shot, is there is there a goal that Mitch has in mind of this is what I want? Or you do you generally work off standard because of your drawing background? your standard comp- compositional rules of Fibonacci spiral or rule of thirds or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I wish I had a good answer for you. I don't really overthink these things. Um, You're but just it really has this to, is killing me. <laughs> no, I mean, it all has to be focused on the story. So the best way that I can tell the story, yes, I'm thinking about compositions and I'm definitely thinking about the quality and the character of the splash in this case, like you just said, thank you for noticing. Um, but you I noticed it, before, it, right? It's not just me, please. No, I, 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 I specifically, like, I, I'll tell you that I considered the splash the third character of this image. Yes. So I have, okay. I have Duke Kaboom. Yeah, I have Duke Kaboom. I have Sporky and I have that splash. Um, they're all critical characters to the story that I'm telling. So um, I'm sure that I, I sweated and focused an enormous amount on the creation of that splash and making sure I got the one that I liked. So um, you are not overstating of what that splash, the character of that splash, because it, it, what, whatever kind of, whatever kind of practical effect I'm doing, usually that effect, whether it's smoke or fire or dirt that's exploding, it's, it's very critical to the story. And so I spend a lot of attention to it as much as I would to the pose of a character. Okay. Yeah. So you take these onto your computer. Are you a Lightroom user, a Photoshop user? What's your software? 
I think I'm pretty um, standard in, in that I import them into Lightroom. I do all my, you know, exposure, color adjustments, most of them in Lightroom. Um, I'll, I'll crop a little in, in Lightroom and then I'll export them to Photoshop where I'll do the final adjustments on those things where I'll also obviously remove the wires that I have for support. Um, stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, I like to say that Photoshop, I like to remove things as, and not as much put things in with Photoshop. Um, there's a lot of schools of thought on Photoshop. I'm sure within all of photography, but also within toy photography, there's people that think using Photoshop is cheating. Of course, I don't agree with that. Right. Um, but more power to you if that's the way you like to work. I, I'm more of the philosophy that there's nothing wrong. Just do whatever you want to do that gets you to the image and story that you want. And for me, it's Lightroom and Photoshop. Sometimes there's very little Photoshop. Sometimes there's a lot of Photoshop. Was this one I a don't lot care. or a little? I'm trying to. This one was a normal amount, in which case I mostly removed the wires. Um, I, I'm, I'm thinking I may have composited a part of a splash from another image to this to give it the right character that I wanted. Uh, but other than that, it was it was just a normal amount of Photoshop, pretty much. I mean, editing, basic editing. And yeah. to remove the wires, I'm assuming you shoot a plate shot before all this happens so that you have the table without the wires. Generally, I will do that. But I have to tell you, if there's wires behind the splash, it does. Or if there's like or if there's like I'm using a fog effect with with atmosphere aerosol, the spray, the fog in a can, or if there's smoke, it almost does me no good to do that because the background is going to be so different than the than the oh. shot that I that my my final shot that it almost ends up being more work than actually just cloning the wires out. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. I do critique shows with my buddy Don Komarechka, which who is a macro uh -huh. genius. I don't I've, know if I've seen yeah. yeah, I've watched I've watched some of those. Don is like next level to me. And periodically cool. we get people submit toy shots. And same with local image competitions that I do where people will submit toy shots. And I always nice. tell them to go look up Mitchell Wu because inevitably they make what would arguably be avoidable mistakes had they just seen what could be done. They're doing what's in their head and they haven't elevated there yet because they just haven't envisioned it. Right. But when they see you, they envision it. So here's my question is, what is your tip for people who want to try this? One tip that will at least give them a little step up. This is going to disappoint you. But again, my I get this, I get this question a lot from people who are just starting or even I get a lot of emails from parents of kids who are doing it and say, what could my kid do? My first answer is tell a story because I can tell you, I can tell you exactly that I've seen I've seen images that tell incredible stories that are technically really really have a lot of problems. Okay, and I've seen technically excellent images that have nothing to say, and I much prefer the former, which is story based. I don't care about With your flaws, technique. Yeah. That's going to come if you keep shooting. But having said that. I think one of the big things that I would recommend is bringing your camera down to the toy level because a lot of beginners will stand up a lot higher than the toy. And when you get down and shoot at the toy level, it makes it so much easier for the viewer to kind of enter that world. Same That's as when you shoot tip. kids yeah. or dogs, you get to their, you're right to their eye level. You, I, I looked up some of your interviews. 
And Mojo Nation, and people can Google it, Mojo Nation. Uh, I think I may even have a link to this in the show notes. Um, you made a quote in this interview that I find fascinating about how you got a gig and, and quote, they found something on another photographer's Instagram page, which made them uncomfortable. So the opportunity went to me. So always remember that what you put into the world, especially on social media, becomes a large part of your brand. And I think a lot of people forget that. And I love that quote. I think it's a great tip. So let's finish here. If, if Mitch Wu were to tell people, you may not know this photographer, any genre, but you really should see this photographer's work. Who would it be? Yeah, I, I will say that he's a photographer, but first and foremost, this individual is a cinematographer. His name is Neville Kidd, double D at the end. Um, and I first became aware of his work through, and I didn't know who he was, but I was watching, I've seen his work through different, through different um, television series, but it was most recently on the second season of the Umbrella Academy, Umbrella Academy on Netflix, that I was literally blown away by the images and the cinematography, so much so that it really kind of motivated me to look at the way I'm using light. Um, and after I've doing seen, a little research, I've like seen Google, both seasons of Umbrella Academy. What was the Neville Kid part in that? He's the cinematographer. Oh, He's on the cinematographer, Umbrella Academy? So, yes, oh. yes. Yes. So specifically okay. in the second, you've seen both seasons, right? Yeah. So in the second season, there's a scene where I forget, I'm not going to tell any spoilers, but there's a scene that comes up where one character confronts two other characters in a barn and there was light streaming in through these barn windows and the, and he had the strong rim lighting on, on one side of his head and it was, it was just gorgeous. And so after that, I started like looking really closely at the camera angles, the lighting, everything that Neville was doing in this show. And it, it just blew my mind. And so I just, I started following on Instagram. I started, I found some interviews that he had done and just, I mean, I couldn't recommend people look at his work uh, if they really wanna kind of get a sense of the drama that you can create with lighting and angles and, you know, for me, it was very motivating and inspirational. So I have a feeling it might be for some of your viewers as well. Okay. That's, Check them out. <laughs> that's perfect. And by the way, if you haven't seen Umbrella Academy, definitely watch Umbrella Academy because it's a great show. So Mitchell Wu, if you want to find Mitchell Wu's links, uh, behindtheshot.tv, show notes associated with this blog post, you'll see a small gallery of his work. You'll see a little blurb that I wrote about Mitchell and all the links and everything related to his life are there. But let's just give them out verbally Perfect. for those that are on the, the audio feed. Your website is? Uh, www.mitchellwutoyphotography.com. Okay. Uh, Facebook and Instagram uh, my, my are the Instagram. same. Instagram. Yes. Mitchell Wu Photography. Okay. Right. And Twitter? Uh, Mitchell Wu Photo. Okay. So make yeah. sure that you go check out Mitchell's work. Uh, follow him wherever you can because just amazing work. And I do want to mention it was supposed to happen this year. It's because of COVID. It's been postponed. But in my hometown at the Riverside Art Museum, uh, June of 2021 will be a solo exhibition of your work. And my friend, I will be there. There is no question I'm going to make that show. <laughs> I'll keep you posted on the opening. That'll be fun. That'll be fun. Mitchell, thank you so much for doing this, man. I, I appreciate your taking your time out of your day and sharing your knowledge with us. And, and uh, just, I love your work. Thank you. 
Thank you. And ditto. I love your work. Your concert photography is mind blowing. Um, and I love what you're doing with behind the shot because I've learned a lot by watching some of the photographers you've interviewed. I think it's just a great forum to learn and be entertained by this thing we call photography that we love and do. So thank you so much for doing that. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. And I should share that Mitchell messaged me the other day and said, he just saw the Rick Salmon one. And now he wants a Canon R6. So I those sure things do, do happen. <laughs> uh, so to everybody, just a reminder, head to the website behindtheshot.tv. You can find all the information, all the links, just find the, the blog post associated with this episode there. Follow Mitchell wherever you can. Again, it's MitchellWooToyPhotography.com. Mitchell Woo Photography is Facebook and Instagram. Mitchell Woo Photo on Twitter. Don't forget about the critique shows that I do. I mentioned a second ago with Don Komarechka, where if you join our Flickr group, which is behind the shot on Flickr, and you can have the free Flickr account or the pro, doesn't matter. You can contribute photos, participate in the community. But if you tag them with a Flickr tag of BTS Critique, that puts them into the pool of images that Don and I choose from. Once a month, we're doing image critique shows, having a blast. We've started having guest critiquers on with us. And uh, so head on over there, set some images up, have some fun. And again, you don't have to be critiqued, but the opportunity is there if you want it. And that does it for this time around on Behind the Shot. This is the show where we try and get inside the mind of great photographers like Mitchell Wu to better understand the choices that they make when they make their art. I hope that you enjoyed it. If you do, please make sure that you subscribe to the podcast. Subscribe on YouTube. If you're watching on YouTube, please do click the bell so that you're notified every time we release something new. And if you would, drop us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. That's it for this time around. Thank you very much. I'm Steve Brazel, and we will see you on the next show. Thank you.